Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Emergency podcast. I'm Helen Lewis. I'm Stephen Bush. And yeah, as we said, this is a special extra shot of, uh, and maybe a chaser uh, of the podcast because I think it has been a fairly extraordinary weekend. So Donald Trump, mere moments after ushering Theresa May out of the Oval Office, signed an executive order, which, well, let's be honest, no one really seemed to know what exactly what it had said. It certainly banned citizens of seven Muslim majority countries from the US for a, a period of months. Syrian refugees banned indefinitely. And then there was a lot of confusion about people who held dual citizenship with approved countries and actually whether or not some of these would have just uh, restrictions would just apply to people who happened to be born, say, in Iraq or Yemen or Somalia. It all unraveled horribly over the weekend as people kind of ended up being stuck at airports, being told at the airport as they were getting onto a plane to the US that actually they wouldn't be able to get on. Stephen, it looks like a lot of it's going to be unpicked. I mean, we've already found out that there'll be exemptions for British nationals with dual citizenship, right? If you're a Samo well, Farah, we think. Well, we think. So this is the one of the interesting things, as I said in my uh, rather good email, is that Washington has said to Britain and to Canada and presumably to every nation who's phoned up going, I'm sorry, what? Then their people are exempt. However, in practice, that does not seem to be what is happening on the ground at airports, not least because airports in general are fairly loath to put people on planes who they're not sure if they're supposed to have done so. And in terms of what the US Embassy is saying, in terms of its guidance, it's saying, look, if you're a dual national and you're applying for a visa, probably best not to. That is the US Embassy's official advice at time of of recording, which is what, two o'clock? Yeah, who knows what would be by three o'clock. But I think thanks to Schengen, um, and also thanks to being British, and I suppose most of our readers will probably have a British passport, you're quite used to countries being happy to see you, right? So you're used to either going to a European country you know, from there you can then move around other European countries and actually it's kind of seen to be quite neighbourly. Or an old Commonwealth country where again... Or you're seen as a rich tourist who will come and shower everybody with gold. And I don't have any experience of of screening and I know lots of people, if you've got a... And the same name as or same birthday as a terror suspect that can lead to just endless problems for you. But even just as a small scale thing, I went to Russia last year and they sent the G4S security guy over at Heathrow to check our visas were in order before we were allowed on the plane because they said, well, we've just had times where 
they've just sent the whole plane home again. And I think that's something that probably as a British passport holder you don't appreciate much, is that for some people, countries are not happy to see them, right? And their experience of travelling is always fraught. And that is more the world that everybody is moving towards now. Yeah, and some people, of course, will make the argument that of course people were intensely relaxed with that up until the point that it was you know people like them which is true up to a point although actually there people are trying to drawing an inference between obama's visa waiver program which is where he exempted these seven nations from not having to get a visa you can make a lot of justifiable criticism of that policy but it is just absolutely not the same as saying no 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 there are no circumstances under which anyone born in these countries will yeah get i think a it's visa. pretty reasonable to have um you know to say anybody who's been to the tribal regions of pakistan right that they would be somebody that you would expect any every country every western country would take a bit more of an interest in anybody who's been in Yemen, anybody who's been in Turkey and then, you know, mysteriously hasn't got an exit stamp again because you don't know whether or not they've been across the border. There are definitely countries which you would take more interest in people who had visited them or were, were citizens of those countries. I think that's a legitimate thing to do. What seems to be a problem here is just a arbitrarily banning refugees as if there wasn't already a very tight system of vetting for refugees. And B, it seems to have been incredibly ham-fistedly drafted and ordered and other government departments sort of denying knowledge of it. That's one of the things I find worrying because I think although this individual order might get picked apart by the courts, it does suggest to you that Donald Trump's governing style is going to be like a blitz attacker, right? Where he just will do stuff and then see what sticks and then hope that he gets, you know, even if he gets 40% of his terrible, terrible policy through, that's good. The difficulty is there are so many different ways in which it's awful then it's quite hard to unpick. But that's deliberate, isn't it? I mean, I mean, hopefully it's deliberate. Well, is it hopefully deliberate? Is it? Is it? <laughs> I mean, but the interesting question is: so, in terms of the U.S. Constitution, it is a fairly blatant violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. However, there is about to be a five-four Republican majority on the Supreme Court again. I know. I hope Ruth Bader Ginsburg is wrapping up warm this winter. It is an interesting test case about just how partisan the Supreme Court is. So there are so many alarming things. And I'm going to I'm going to bracket them into three distinct groups. Okay. There's alarming trend one, which is Trump's ability to destroy American democracy. One, only two senators and one Republican congressman have explicitly criticized the ban. So Lindsey Graham and John McCain have said, whoa, 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 no, you're not allowed to do that. One Republican congressman, also because of redistricting one of the few Republican congressmen in a district where Hillary Clinton won because of how they've managed the congressional So district. lots of Democrats have come out against so, it. Yeah, but, so, yeah. But his own part. I mean, this was always what we talked about, wasn't it? It was the calculation of the mainstream Republican Party, which has got no great love for Donald Trump, right? He's not interested in the things that they're interested in, by and large. How much will they tolerate him doing his sort of minor league Gaddafi shtick while they get on with the agenda that they want to get on with? I think there are two discrete groups to worry about in terms of this meme of, oh, the Republicans will keep him in line. One is, as you say, people like Paul Ryan, who are basically willing to go, I can't see any internment camps. What but is I've got an that inter- lovely tax cut. I've got, yeah, there <laughs> yeah. are those people who, you know, they don't really care what values he shreds as, as long as they get to shred the social security net as well. Then there are the moderate Republicans, most of whom have been driven out of town through primaries, or they have been driven to the right through fear of being primaried. That's the same thing happened to Democrats. Is it polarisation or is it a drift to the right? No, and one of this is the other problem with the idea that institutions will oppose Trump. Even Democrats on that party's left, so Brian Schatz, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren have made some noises about how they will do deals with him on infrastructure, on other policies. 
Because the whole setup of the US government is based on the idea that if one side goes, we're taking our ball home and it's not going to work, it falls apart, right? So the Democrats obviously have a vested interest in government working. So yeah, you've kind of, you've kind of had asymmetric polarization. It's not a system set up to reward a good government if people behave like European parties. The Democrats are still operating like an American party. The Republicans are operating like a European one. Now, the interesting thing is that a large chunk of, of the Democratic base, from right to left, is moving in a direction, and they're just like, look, obstructionism works. We just have to be as obstructionistic as they were for the whole of uh, Barack Obama's presidency. That is not where very many Democratic senators are. Whether or not that is where they start to move, I think it will be an interesting test after this latest round, whether or not you still get Democrats uh, in the Senate, regardless of their left-right placement, who are willing to work with with Trump on their own pet projects. Okay, so number one of the things that you're afraid of is number one is the undermining of democratic institutions. What is number two? So number two is the use of a religious test to enter national borders, which is deeply immoral. It offends the most sort of basic values of... I think also, I just on a pragmatic level as well, I know we... we I, I mean, morally, yeah, I think it's repugnant, but I also think that it is incredibly helpful i mean there's been lots of commentary about the kind of clash of civilizations narrative being incredible that is incredibly helpful to islamic fundamentalists if you're isis you want to be able to say yes everyone is against us shiraz maher who writes for us has, has written about this concept before this idea of the gray zone right they want to destroy the gray zone they want to destroy this idea that there can be moderate muslims who are integrated into the west they want it to be a black versus white conflict of it's just very in very stark terms and this is playing into exactly that agenda i mean the difficulty with border policy in particular is because it's so fraught with things I dislike anyway it's quite difficult sometimes to argue against all things because you kind of start being like well I don't like this but I dislike this even more etc etc I instinctively don't like arguments which are based around like oh what about our security or oh this would have shut out Steve Jobs's dad or whatever because all people have intrinsic worth the right of refugees in particular is an intrinsic good that some Jewish refugees in the 30s went on to found big American companies is kind of incidental to the, the the moral worth of accepting them in. But the third thing, to kind of bring it back to the UK um, issue, is it's not just the fact that it allows IS to go, look, it's true, it is us or the West. It's also some of the people being turned away are people who have worked as translators or informants for years, some of them have been sent back to not, die. Yeah, let's be honest. Some, some of these, yeah. if, not if all of them are going to be able to like just like wait in the airport and hope, right? Yeah, and I think there is a big question if you've if you've been seen to work with American forces in Iraq, for example, then your life is in in danger. Um, um, but so I, here's the question that will dominate. I think probably well the next couple of days, and then we'll be back into Brexit grown again. Yeah, how what can Britain do? So what what should Britain do? Well, I mean, so there's kind of things that people can do as individual citizens. So you can give to the ACLU is, I think, the main thing that you can do. There's plenty of refugee organisations. Can... in. I mean, the one I would probably name is Women for Refugee Women, set up by Natasha Walter, which has done great work about Yarl's Wood and about um, his campaign against pregnant women in detention. Um, there's an organisation called, I think, Refugees at Home, which is for people who've got a spare room if they want to um, house somebody whose uh, claims being processed, for example. Um, but I mean, in terms of what the government is doing, so the person whose response I was most surprised by, I mean, it wasn't a surprise to me that the Liberal 
left condemned this was Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Tory leader, you know, coming out quite strongly about the state visit. I mean, I don't feel sorry for Theresa May in the slightest, but I think that is an oncoming horror for them, right? That will be protest arama. There will be members of her own party who will be extremely reluctant to go and listen to him speak. Uh, there'll be a big row about where he gets to speak in Parliament. I feel sorry for the Queen because she's going to have to make conversation with the guy. Because the one thing I am sympathetic to about the security issue, right, is then what is the point of having, you know, forget the special relationship. What is the point of any diplomatic relationship if you cannot, at a minimum, get governments not to do things which actively endanger and inconvenience your own citizens? If you can't... It ain't no relationship. At a minimum, what is really the point of any diplomatic relationship, let alone a special relationship, if you can't protect your own citizens from a policy which will make put them in further danger of uh, being the victim of, of terrorist attacks around the globe and inconveniences them going about their business. Now, yes, that is a problem which has been a long time coming. Ask hundreds of Muslim families who've tried to go to Disneyland, Florida, for example. But I'm actually intensely relaxed with Donald Trump getting an official state visit. We gave Chesku one. We gave Xi Jinping one, right? It is fine to roll out the red carpet to awful people, right? That is a large chunk of what we do in foreign policy. I'm much more unnerved by the fact that the government doesn't is acting like it doesn't realise and it's rolling out the red carpet to awful people, right? So it's one thing to, for example, Britain has, has been for the last decade probably the most virulently opposed to Putin's Russia. You can argue the rights and wrongs of that policy, but it's no longer really sustainable when you have a situation where the United States isn't also fairly opposed to Putin's Russia. Now, I'm not saying this necessarily means that privately people should go, oh, Litvinenko had it coming. Oh, you know, Ukraine should never have worn such a short skirt, etc., etc. But there is obviously a case for a rhetorical, a formal, you know, various ways to de-escalate the tensions with Russia, because... If the United States is not sold on the idea that, that Russia is an aggressor, which it clearly isn't under Trump, then what is the plan to contain Russia if France doesn't want to and America doesn't want to? What is Britain going to do in that situation? So we, we have this weird thing where we've decided we're going to morally abase ourselves by giving Trump a, a gala, which, OK, you morally abase yourself in foreign policy all the time, but we're not actually doing any of the kind of... We're not doing the thing of, like, offering one hand and arming the other. We're literally doing the offering one hand, holding out the other hand, going, God, I hope he doesn't punch me. And and that is basically our policy towards Trump. One thing I think that May did well is I thought the way that she handled Trump on a personal level was the right way to do it. It reminded me of when they first, when Trump first went into the White House when Obama was still in. And Obama was just very respectful and just kind of treated him kind of like an equal, um, which obviously in kind of intellectual terms, cruelly they are not equals, but it meant that actually you could see that Trump's desire to kind of get approval overwhelmed his desire to say something awful. And because she sort of treated him as if he would be a kind of sensible grown-up, he kind of felt he'd been sort of chastened into it. I mean, it reminded me of um, Joanna Lumley frog-marching out Phil Woolers to say, and we have agreed, haven't we, that we will be helping all of the Gurkhas. And that was a bit how kind of Theresa May came across saying, well, Donald Trump has, you know, he's, he's told me in private that he's very supportive of NATO. And he just sort of stood there kind of going like... The difficulty is, is and yeah, this is kind of the great delusion of Britain's Trump policy, 
is she can't hold his hand 24 hours a day. The man's afraid of stairs, Stephen. You know, it worked about as well as Obama doing that press conference, right? He's still trying to dismantle Obamacare. He's still introduced this Muslim no, no, but If ban. we're going to talk about real politique, I think that that is actually ultimately... You have to treat him as if he's going to do sensible grown-up things when you're in the vicinity of him or you're talking to him, right? You can't... I think if you try to actually phone him up and bollock him about something, he'd just get grumpy and you wouldn't get anywhere. I do think, partly because seeing as we've left the... Yeah, we've left the only block we could plausibly be in than has values even close to the values you would ideally want in a in a large international bloc. The sensible post-Brexit policy, or the only post-Brexit policy, is basically to try and be everyone's mate and just try and sell everyone everything. The difficulty is May's policy is to be significantly more hostile towards China than Cameron and Osborne. It's to continue the hostility toward Russia. And basically, as far as I can tell, to pretend that if we're nice about Donald Trump, he'll become Hillary Clinton. That's not going to happen. We can will That's Hillary Clinton That's actually an incredibly bit. dangerous foreign policy to pursue. It's not real policy at all. Yeah, I, the decision I think was more questionable was to fly immediately on from Trump to Erdogan in Turkey, as if it was sort of Theresa May's bastard tour. Uh, I thought that was probably the optics of that. I think that's probably going to come back to haunt them slightly as well. I'd also meant fundamentally that they were in the air during the whole time that all the stuff was kicking off and then Nadim Zahawi tweeted that he didn't think he was going to be allowed in America anymore and they kind of stumbled off the plane and went, he said what now? Well, I think yeah, that, that is the other point. This is the first time Downing Street has had to do any form of crisis management under Theresa May. And let's face it, they the interesting they were not thing... They the thing we that, The thing that will give Labour and the Liberal Democrats hope and the thing that the leader's office is very cheery about is that they flunked that test completely. They put out not... a line that could, that obviously everybody could see could not hold. And whether or not that's because that was the only line that they had or whether they misjudged the mood of the, kind of the pack, I think is an interesting question. I mean, I think what I find astonishing about it, right, I'm not going to pretend that I was thought, you know, Theresa May and I had a particular pool of values. But obviously it's, you know, you can't make decisions when the principle is in the air. That's very difficult. But I honestly don't understand how we can possibly have someone in government who doesn't realise than when one of your own MPs, one of your own MPs, is told he can't, can't, he might not be able to come to it because of where he's born. You don't go, well, obviously we're going to condemn that. Just as a bare minimum, right? I know that, you know, Theresa May thinks I'm a citizen of nowhere and that we're all whining liberals and all of that noise, right? But I, I did at least think then of the, you know, 330 Conservative MPs in the House of Commons, she was at least fairly fond of them. I mean, like, if she won't look after Nadim Zai, who is this a government for? And on that, well, I'm sure that's a question to which we will return many times. But thank you for listening to the emergency podcast, everyone. We'll be back with our regular podcast later in the week. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. It's produced by India Book, and our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. Why not subscribe to the New Statesman magazine? Just visit subscribe.newstatesman.com. 